Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Sunil Nagaraj joins us today from San Francisco. Sunil is the founder and managing partner of Ubiquity Ventures, a seed stage institutional venture capital firm with close to 100 million under management and a focus on software beyond the screen startups. Prior to founding Ubiquity Ventures, Sunil spent six years as a venture capitalist with Bessemer Venture Partners. And prior to being an investor, Sunil was founder and CEO of Triangulate. He's also worked at Bain & Company, Cisco, and Microsoft during his career. Sunil currently serves on the boards of digital industrial innovators, including Kinetic, PackSafe, Hubs, SafeHub, and ThruWave, just to name a few. And he has prior notable investments, including rocket ships, including Rocket Lab, Spire, and Otho. Sunil, great to have you on the show to discuss this fun category of software beyond the screen that, that we'll dive into later. But welcome to the Heavy Hitters. Uh, thanks, Ty. I'm really glad to be here. Right on. Well, we, we always love to start with backgrounds, and I know I gave a snapshot of yours, but give us more of that color commentary that led you into this world of digital industrial venture investing and ultimately launching Ubiquity Ventures. Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, my whole life, I've, I've been a nerd into technology, into coding, into software. Um, growing up, my dad taught me how to code. I uh, studied computer science in undergrad. I went to UNC Chapel Hill. And um, in that uh, area, I, I went super deep into software, super deep into software engineering and organizations. Um, started the Computer Science Club back at Carolina. I really love bringing, bringing people together, bringing nerds together, and that's a common theme, even with Ubiquity Ventures. Um, after graduating from UNC Chapel Hill, I worked at Bain & Company, uh, beefed up on my business skill set, um, but I still missed coding, so nights and weekends. I was working on my own software projects on the side, which was quite fun. Um, but that was the first kind of entry into some of this uh, supply chain digital industrial with a few projects uh, at Bain and Company along the way. I went to Harvard Business School to get my MBA. And um, upon finishing, I moved out to Silicon Valley uh, in 2009, actually, to start uh, a company. I was an entrepreneur out here in Palo Alto, where I still live to this day. And in 2009, the company I started was called Triangulate. It was a machine learning powered online dating site. Uh, so pretty different than digital industrial, uh, <laughs> but uh, it did uh, actually play on a lot of the machine learning stuff that I still use to this day and, and half of Ubiquity is focused on machine learning. So I, I did this startup 2009, raised money in 2010, uh, wound down in 2011. So kind of a, a surgical seed stage experience and, and played out a bunch of experiments. I can tell you more about that if we have time, uh, but it was in 2011 that I joined Venture Capital. Um, so that's when I uh, joined Bessemer Venture Partners. Uh, where I was for six years. So I was at Bessemer 2011 to 2017, and that's when I did some of these investments you mentioned earlier, Auth0, Rocket Lab, um, which is a rocket, Velo 3D, which is a metal 3D printer, uh, and, uh, and really just learned how to do venture capital, uh, how, uh, train uh, how to coach companies, how to um, find the best companies. And um, after six years at, at Bessemer, doing quite a bit of deep technology investing while I was at Bessemer, I... Um, decided to launch Ubiquity Ventures. And that's when, um, so it was actually summer of 2017 that I launched Ubiquity Ventures. So as of today, Ubiquity's a little over four years old. Right on. Well, a coder, a Bainey, uh, an operator who's raised venture capital and spent some time at, at one of the best in the business with Bessemer. Um, I, I'm excited to hear more about Ubiquity Ventures. And so a natural segue then, set the stage for all our listeners. Tell us a little bit more about Ubiquity Ventures generally, your investment strategy and, and stage of investment. 
Sure. Um, so in many ways, Ubiquity is, um, is sort of the other end of the spectrum from a Bessemer. So at, at Ubiquity, there is uh, one stage focus, one sector focus, one investor. You know, it's a really simple focused operation, which I think um, is, a, is a really nice uh, match for the right kind of entrepreneur. I'll tell you what that means. But um, in terms of Ubiquity's premise, the core idea is that while software is amazing, it's been stuck on a computer and a phone up until recently. And in just the last few years, software can now move beyond the screen. You know, the, the tagline of Ubiquity is really um, software beyond the screen. And the idea here is that software can run on your wrist, it can run in your ear, it can run in your car, it can run in space, it can run on a cow. Uh, these are all, um, you know, investments or products that I have uh, in my life. And uh, I believe that software is now ubiquitous all around us. In order for that to occur, software still needs somewhere to run. So about half my investments have an element of smart hardware. And software needs to understand us, understand the world, and that's where machine learning comes in. So, you know, I'm giving you the, the colorful description of ubiquity. A more straightforward description is that we invest in smart hardware and machine learning companies that are transforming real-world problems real-world physical problems, transforming them into software problems. This is what software beyond the screen really means. Um, the, the firm um, has about 100 million under management, um, usually investing between one and one and a half million dollars into pre-seed or seed rounds of companies. Uh, maybe 20% of the investments that Ubiquity's made have been the day the company was incorporated. So sometimes it's day zero. So usually it's within six months or 12 months of a company's formation. Um, usually there's one or two founders at the company, usually no revenue. So it's early stage, but I, I think the reason this works is uh, we try to maintain such a tight focus, a tight sector focus that um, um, I, I aim to be pretty knowledgeable about a sector even before I meet a company. So I'm not having to ramp up anew. Uh, and so I think this notion of Deep, deep specialist is uh, something that really resonates with me. Absolutely. And uh, it's funny. I've met the Halter guys before. I grew up uh, in East Texas and ran a bunch of heads of her for cattle. And the idea that you do need a way to manage them without um, all the reasons Halter exists. Fun one for folks to check out whose listeners is point there. So, yeah. Sunil, you, you unpacked the definition of software beyond the screen for us. Now, Venture timing is everything. So walk us through the why the time was now to spin out of a firm like Vesmer and mm -hmm. focus on this thesis. Uh, you also compounded into this. You're really the earliest stage of capital in that pre-seed rank uh, amongst going upstream as well. But why was the time now specifically for this software beyond the screen? Uh, that's a great question. You know, so, so there's two, um, I think you touched on two types of timing. One was um, Wiley Bessemer, uh, and then why is the time right for software beyond the screen? You know, um, I only have great things to say about Bessemer. It's um, it's a large place where there's a lot of uh, good processes. I was able to, to train and learn, but at the same time, I was able to realize that, um, you know, being a jack of all trades, having multiple stages, multiple sectors, multiple offices was not where I thought I could do my best work. You know, some of the, the best investments I was involved with I worked on alone. Um, I, I um, raced through the diligence myself, put together a memo, and and kind of and and had a deep personal connection with the entrepreneurs because of my background. And that's kind of the opposite of a big VC firm model, where you have lots of processes, lots of touch points, lots of people. So, after six years at Bessemer, I started to realize that I had um, the network, the skill set, and the track record to. Uh, be able to strike out on my own. Um, I was happy to share that all the partners in my office were LPs when I when I started my first fund, personal LPs. So that really helped get up and get me off the ground. 
Um, but um, but for me, it was a, a real, realizing that my you know today what I call a nerdy and early focus. You know, I call you basically <laughs> a nerdy and early firm um, was was better suited to to do as a um, outside as a decimal model as opposed to inside. Um, now, with regard to the the, the the theme, you know, the timing of software be on the screen. This is something that had been bouncing around my mind for a little while. Um, some of the investments I had done, I started to see um, an opening, an opportunity. And as investors, we're always looking for kind of an arbitrage opportunity, an area that's bigger than people think it is, or an area that's misunderstood. Now, I um, was a seed investor at Bessemer. I was a seed investor in Tile. Tile is the little... Um, you know, size of two quarters, a little lost and found device. Um, and I um, met the company and, and everyone thought it was a hardware company. Half of the, the Bessemer partnership, you know, said, hey, this is just a hardware company. Why are we doing this? And it was, it was that was probably 2012 or 13 um, that I saw that it was much more like a software company, you know, with this thin physical substrate. I forget how much it cost. Maybe it was a dollar or two for the device. I, I really don't remember anymore. But with that one or two dollars of physical substrate, you could then let software take over. You could have software pace of innovation at Tile. You could have software features that rolled out over time. Uh, and that started to, to bounce around in my mind. Um, in 2014, at the end of 2014, we invested in a rocket company called Rocket Lab. Uh, it's now a public company. We invested uh, very early. They had maybe 10 employees at the company. Um, and rockets also seem maybe the farthest thing from software. But deep inside the rocket was the world's first electric turbo pump for a rocket. This is all credit to Rocket Lab founder and CEO Peter Beck. Um, but he decided to replace basically the most important physical part of a rocket he replaced it with a um, electric motor, kind of like a Tesla. That's still hardware, I appreciate, but that electric motor runs software. The way that that electric motor turns on, drives torque, is all uh, written with lines of C++. So as I looked at that investment, a huge rock, huge $7 million price point rocket, the most important part of it were lines of code that were updated at the same pace that Google updates Gmail or Facebook app gets updated. So this, this notion kept coming up over and over again. Velo 3D was a metal 3D printer. Spire was a satellite company. Um, I, I kept running into these things that most people within Bessemer, most people in the industry said, oh, that's cool, you get to do hardware. And I kept saying, no, 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 the magic here is the software. So uh, eventually I formalized that concept um, in my mind. I formalized it on paper into this notion of software beyond the screen, which is that the real world can be, problems can be solved with software. When you work on smart hardware sometimes, you actually can start moving at the speed and the capital intensity of software. And that's a very counterintuitive idea as well, that, that you can, you know, with space, I used to do a lot of space investing, and I would say that you can launch a satellite for the same cost that you can launch a mobile app. And those are just so different ideas. And it's actually a true statement. You can build and design and launch a small satellite for the same cost that you could takes to launch a dating app. And um, so anyway, this, this kept recurring in my mind. And, and at some point, you know, you never know when the right time to launch is. You never feel totally comfortable. It's true for entrepreneurship. It's true for a venture capital firm. But I pulled the trigger and um, July 1st, 2017 was the first day that uh, ubiquity is a real thing with this focus of software being on the screen.
Well, whatever was bouncing around in your head, um, so we obviously have seen Rocket Lab's list and then Peter Platt's or Inspire listed and Velo 3D uh, to round out your trifecta there. All are all are now through the SPAC process publicly listed companies. So I think you're uh, I think you're doing all right there, Sunil. Um, so so maybe I'll I'll take us to the next step um, of another word that often gets thrown around a lot. But so I've had our shared friend Guy Perlmutter from Grids Capital on the podcast to talk about all things deep tech, right? Guy wrote the book on this stuff. It's a great read for everyone uh, listening. But everyone has their own definition of what deep tech means and how they define the category. So how do you define the term deep tech? And, and why is it that it seems like now more than ever, both founders and VCs are focusing and taking the risks on these deep tech areas to drive alpha for their companies and funds? It's a great question. Um, this word deep tech, I think about it as, as what it's not for, you know, initially. Hmm. So what it's not is what most VCs are focusing on. You know, it's not the next Facebook or the next Instagram or the next Salesforce.com. It's not typical enterprise SaaS. It's not a typical mobile app. Um, and this gets back to what I mentioned a few minutes ago, that investors um, should always be looking for arbitrage or some um, hidden opportunity, something that, that you know that others don't. And so deep tech, I think, in many ways is a, is a reaction to sort of um, – an overcrowded and overheated SaaS and consumer sector. Uh, now, deep tech uh, doesn't have, a, I don't think, formal definition, but what I think of it as is a, a company where if you didn't have a deep technologist at the helm, it wouldn't have gotten off the ground. Um, now, deep tech can include um, areas like um, material science. It can include things like, um, you know, synthetic biology, but my definition of deep tech um, is 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 uh, carefully chosen so that um, I think I can produce the best returns um, that I can find the most attractive companies that are capital efficient. So I think of deep tech as companies that are are using um, slightly deeper technology. You know, slightly is a critical piece here, but can still follow a similar capital profile and a timing profile as a typical software company. So I'm not a deep tech investor that wants a company to raise $20 million before they launch, let's say, or $200 million before they launch. Uh, and that is, you know, there's certain pockets of deep tech that are like that. The, the deep tech that I'm interested in uh, is um, includes companies where they can raise a million or $2 million and have a live product with customers. And that really skinnies down the field. But I think it's actually very important to, to maintain focus on some of the rules of entrepreneurship, even though if you're going to break some of the rules of entrepreneurship, you know, um, so I think there's 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 a, a very attractive uh, angle here of, of finding companies that are not typical software companies. They use newer, more advanced technologies, but very quickly they bring it back to core principles of finding happy customers as quickly as possible, having uh, dynamic pricing, using settings, analytics and updates to continually improve their product. So um, I, I like deep tech companies that that are able to pretty quickly look like software companies. Got it. And and just to tease out that point around, you like to see them raise kind of that million to two million dollar round first, get an MVP going. With things like Rocket Labs, you know, Spire, et cetera, do those happen to just fall out of the bucket by the necessity of needing kind of the war chest from the beginning to get a couple of toaster ovens up in, in Leo? Or how, how do you think about that? Does that start to categorize yeah. certain pieces out? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, we should 
I think we've clarified Rocket Lab and Spire were was uh, were investments during my time at Bessemer. Right. So the Bessemer is much larger fund, but right. I still think this principle. I mean, I think this is an important point, Ty. I think mm -hmm. you can be on the straight and narrow and launch a new mobile app or a new SaaS company, and if you do that, you kind of have to follow the rules. You have to follow the the normal path, and then I think if you if you're a bold entrepreneur and, and you start doing a deep tech company, very often you get licensed to break the rules. But I do think you can break too many rules, right? I think it's pretty mm -hmm. easy to, to say you're a deep tech entrepreneur or a deep tech investor and go off the deep end. That is to say, you flaunt all the rules and you say, you know, I don't need a million, I need a billion. You know, you got to think big. I need a billion dollars before I can launch this company. And sometimes you get it. And I think that's a dangerous thing. So uh, mm -hmm. there is, um, you know, when, when there's a, a necessary component of discipline so if you're, that you just sort of surgically break a few rules but then but then keep the the primary business uh a typical startup business with the typical software needs to capital needs typical timing needs so i that's what i'm really thinking a lot about um so rocket lab inspire would be tricky for me today um mm -hmm. but at the same time there are some you know i, I have a, a few space investments um under ubiquity and even there I'm, I'm looking for entrepreneurs who are still able to um consider their startups a set of small experiments that build upon one each other, build upon each other. Um, now, the other way to describe a startup is somebody's life's passion that's going to change the world uh, and, and do whatever it takes and use as much capital to get there. I prefer the former. You know, I prefer startups as a, a set of experiments with a well laid out hypothesis that build upon each other that can continually de-risk a project little by little. So, you know, you take a million dollars and you run a few experiments and if they work out the way you think, then you raise five million and then you run some more experiments. Um, that's, um, I think, a very surgical, um, it's almost scientific method way of looking at startups. So I think you can do deep tech, you know, dreamy, futuristic deep tech, but still have that discipline on capital and experiment mindset. So thoughtful, um, not unexpected, but certainly know what you're looking for and how you put your your frame frameworks around how to evaluate these companies. Love it. Um, maybe associated to the call it emerging category of deep tech to be determined how you how you debate it. But I'm passionate about this topic of exits and founders ultimately understanding you know there is a beginning with the end of mind to some degree with these businesses, especially in deep tech categories where other than some that I rattled off that have done really well and the SPAC process has certainly helped this ecosystem, that the comps are relatively limited, say sans traditional enterprise software, consumer IT, et cetera. So when we think about how you've been able to identify and evaluate the potential for these companies longer term, in an ecosystem that hasn't really been fully defined in the public markets yet, again, SANS last two years alone, how did you how did you get to that realization around, you know, this is a category that could have alpha opportunities, even though accelerated valuations and exits are are still on the come here, basically investing ahead of the curve. So, you know, how'd you get comfortable with it? It's a great question. Um, I, I think, you know, when you talk about um, founders keeping in mind, you know, the beginning, the middle, the end, and, and the exit. Um, to me, it's it's part of a broader conversation uh, about the kinds of businesses that exist. Um, I think this is right. Like 99% of businesses in America are um, businesses that serve customers, generate a profit, and dividend that profit to their shareholders. And that is the normal way for a business to work. Uh, they um, use a certain amount of capital, they grow over time, um, and they will probably never grow 
20x in a single year, but they usually don't fail either. So that's like I would call a business. Uh, and then there are these things called startups where you um, they kind of get glorified, but you you stumble upon an immense untapped opportunity where you could go from a million to 10 million to 100 million over three years. Now that's crazy. It's almost supernatural for that to happen. And I think if you find one of those opportunities, then you should raise venture capital. Uh, but um, and, and then if you if you head down that route, you, you do tie your hands a bit that you are shooting for the moon or bust. And that's where you have this beginning, middle and end. You know, you really adopt this somewhat rigid framework of um, you're going to get onto the, um, you know, the fast track, so to speak. I hate to glorify it, but you're going to get onto this track where you'll you'll raise venture capital. You'll be running a deeply unprofitable company because you're prioritizing revenue growth at all costs. Uh, and as a result, you know, if it works, you have a chance of like, let's take Auth0, for example. You know, I invested at the seed at, at eight million pre-money valuation. And um, seven years later, the company was worth a thousand times more. That's um, almost crazy if you think about it. And and but to do that, you have to adopt these um, many um, parts of the process, like the beginning, the middle, the end, uh, like thinking about the exit, you know, the day you start the company, which you really don't need to do if you're thinking of starting an Italian restaurant down the street or you're thinking of starting, um, you know, a, a large you know, nationwide um, dry cleaning service or something like that. These are very profitable businesses, but those are those are businesses and we're talking about startups. So um, the the second part of your question, you know, exits in deep tech areas. Uh, you're right. They are very um, few and far between. I view that as part of something I, I keep pounding the drum on, which is. You got to look for arbitrage. You got to look for things that aren't so obvious. You got to look for untapped opportunities. So as an investor, I think it's strangely, it's a little bit of an asset that there aren't that many exits, because if there were a lot of exits, have 100 more VCs come in and um, and 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 um, and crowd out the area. So I think um, with space in 2014, when we invested in um, Rocket Lab at Bessemer, we had just exited Skybox. Skybox was like the, the first big startup exit in the space category. Skybox was a satellite company, it sold to Google for $500 million. And so we knew more about that than other folks. Um, and so we had this sort of additional information about how the sector works. And we used that to our advantage to make um, a smart investment in Rocket Lab. Um, I, I wrote I mean, almost every word of this memo. It's available on Bessemer's website. I think it's bvp.com slash memos slash rocket lab or rocket dash lab. Uh, and, and there you can see this 20 page. It's a real investment memo. Um, Bessemer started publishing them. And in, at the back of that memo, you'll see that we try to estimate the exits. And we had this pretty tricky um, debate. Will Rocket Lab be considered a government contractor and maybe trade at one times revenue? Or will Rocket Lab be considered a tech company and maybe trade at ten times revenue? And uh, and we weren't sure. You know that was a big risk that we took. That that we hoped that the, the pace of the growth and the level of technical technology in this company, and the fact that they weren't doing one-off contracts would allow them to be um, considered uh, much more in the tech category. But these are the things that are still open-ended questions in deep tech, uh, and it's uh, tricky to pin that down. Um, there are some companies that go public. There are some acquisitions uh, throughout the sector, but it's still uh, an un uh, uh, and uh, uh, less explored terrain, and I view that as um, as, a, as an interesting part of the upside potential here. Absolutely. Well, uh, an und 
fettered, untapped capital markets flowing in certainly will be where the big TBD for me uh, is. But that said, I think you've hit on it twice. That This is the whole reason of having a, a prepared mind, taking a specialist approach. I know even at my old shop, G Ventures, we were advanced manufacturing nerds. So desktop metal, Zometry, and Sarcos were all in that portfolio. You certainly didn't see the ball coming uh, call it unless you had an aperture of what you really, really were focused on. So I uh, couldn't believe with you more that you got to get ahead of the arbitrage case, right? So, yeah. um, well, we did open up the discussion multiple times about space tech in uh, in this conversation. And so Mr. Musk has just relocated himself and Tesla to uh, to my hometown here in Austin, Texas. I had to give that shout out. But I got to ask you about a topic you're pretty strong opinionated on. And you've said and been vocal that Elon saying space is hard is not only wrong, but it's counterproductive to the ecosystem. So let, let's hear how you really feel about this. Um, what do you mean by that, Sunil? And, and how is it specifically impacting the space race? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah. So I think it is um, irresponsible, inaccurate, and counterproductive when Elon says that space is hard. Really, anyone says space is hard. Um, it's actually part of a, a broader cons concern. I, I wrote a blog post about this. You probably find it at blog.ubiquity.vc that um, I think I, the blog post title is like the single most useless phrase you'll hear in startups, which is mm -hmm. when somebody says, oh, that was hard. Now, uh, now, let me explain that, and then we'll get into the Elon um, element here. So I think that um, the notion of saying something is hard doesn't help anyone unless you offer more precision. So Ty, if I say, when, you know, I don't know, three years ago when you were thinking of starting a podcast, I'm like, Ty, it's really hard to do a podcast. That doesn't help you at all, and it just sort of crushes someone's spirit. But if I say, Ty, it's really hard because you're going to need to buy a lot of audio equipment, and it's really hard to figure out this stuff works, then you know kind of where you, whether that's a challenge you want to take on. Or if I say, Ty, it's really hard because you don't know it, but you're going to have to spend like 100 hours editing every podcast. Are you up for that? Uh, so that notion of offering more precision on the definition of hard, I think, can it, it's almost required. If you're gonna if you're gonna put down a sector or an area or an initiative and say it's hard, it, you owe it to that person. Tell them why. Is it because of long nights? Is it because you're gonna get the door slammed in your face? Is it because it's a low chance of success? Is it because you're not gonna sleep a lot? So um, uh, against that backdrop, you know, uh, uh, I, I try never to say something is hard without clarifying why. Uh, now with regard to space. Um, SpaceX 2001 got started. Uh, Skybox was founded in 2009, the first kind of new space or space tech exit. Um, we have this um, precious, important, and likely very lucrative area that we have to take care of, right? Um, the, the new space, the space tech category. And if we, um, and, and I don't think it is an easy area to operate in. But I also think that it is important that we recruit more people to this area, that we recruit more resources like venture capital, like acquirers to this area. So it's important that we communicate with accuracy what is difficult, what is not difficult, why it's exciting, what became easier. And uh, when you say space is hard, it's a cute phrase. It gets a laugh, but it is um, directly in opposition to those you know those things i just mentioned that we want more people to come in that we want more venture capital to come in now it turns out when, when folks say space is hard that's when a rocket blows up for example <clears throat> now rockets blow up something like uh three to five percent of the time it's like a, a pretty good statistical average at this point and so when we have a rocket blow up we don't need to say space is hard we just say listen this is 
exactly as our models predict. And this is part of how it works. You know, like we know that a hardware fails as a mean time between failures. We know that a hardware fails after, I forget how many, a million hours or a hundred thousand hours. It's not that building a hard, hard drive um, is hard. It's that we know there's an established failure rate. And so if we can be a little more specific, we can avoid like turning off people to the space sector or making people think it's just for billionaire cowboys or making people think that it's um, a frivolous area or a risky area. Uh, what we need to do is, is communicate the exciting parts, communicate the tricky parts with precision. And this actually um, will allow this, the sector to accelerate further, which is what Elon wants, right? Like, this is why I find it so frustrating. Um, the, the folks in the space sector would love for it to become a bigger sector, a more vibrant sector, and, um, and saying space is hard just accomplishes the opposite. Yeah, I think it's it's a very thoughtful. Uh, there is a marketing aspect to this, and and beyond just being more descriptive about an adjective, it then only gets amplified more by the stature at which your voice echoes throughout the community. So I I think it's a fair critique for sure, but we do need all and any innovators jumping into the the space race alongside. So I'm with you on that part. Well, Sunil, we pushing us forward here. We always love to bring some words of wisdom back to the founders out there listening who are raising venture capital or thinking about it. So what gets you excited about new early stage companies that are approaching ubiquity and, and maybe split it apart? Uh, any keys to success you have for them entering the conversation and, and maybe any common challenges that you can help them head off avoid leading into the chat? Yeah, um, uh, I, I feel very passionate about this uh, this set of questions here. Um, the... Um, I, I, I'm going to cite my uh, refer folks to the blog again. There's a blog post I wrote called uh, "The Single Hardest Thing About Startups," and uh, and and I'll jump to the punchline. It's who do you listen to, right? I think the single hardest thing about startups is who do you listen to, and it's especially so at the earliest stages. Do you listen to your professor at school who tells you what you should be doing with your startup? Do you listen to a VC like me who tells you what you should do? Do you listen to your friend? Do you listen to your spouse? Do you listen to an advisor? Um, and I think all of those, everyone I just said is wrong. I think the only one you should listen to is a customer uh, or a prospective customer. And it's so easy to, to get lost in the noise because um, folks uh, will have a lot of confidence. You know, different people I mentioned, professors, advisors, VCs, will have a lot of confidence. You know, Ty, make sure you don't do this or make sure you do that. I think the only folks that you should, uh, the folks that should have a hundred X louder voice is, um, is customers, customer, uh, prospective customers. Um, and, and that ironically is also important when I'm hearing a pitch, you know, when I hear a, a pre-seed or a seed stage pitch, I want to hear that you've talked to a lot of prospective customers. I'm a big fan of the Steve Blank lean startup approach of, of get out of the building and talk to customers. And the more of that you can tell me, it, it, um, informs the conversation. Uh, with uh, with the venture capitalist, it removes it removes debates on basic facts. You know, if 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 you are pitching your startup, and neither of us have talked to a customer before, we're going to have a debate about what customers think. But if you can just say, Sunil, I know what customers said. I talked to ten of them last week. Then I'm just going to shut up all of a sudden, right? I'm not going to speculate anymore. So um, I think that's the single biggest piece of advice at the at the earliest stages is try to get in front of and talk to as many prospective customers as possible. Now, many people will say, "Yeah, but I can't talk to a customer until I have a product. I can't have a product until I have venture capital. This is circular." I would strongly disagree. I think, and this this is in the lean startup mentality. You know, people throw around this word MVP, but you could have an MVP, a minimum viable product, that's a sheet of paper. Right? If you sketched out what you were doing, or an MVP can be a sentence. You know, if you went to the right 
to, to a prospective customer and said, if I built X, Y, and Z to accomplish A, B, and C, would you be interested? And they're going to either walk right past you, they're going to pause, they're going to smile, or they're going to say, oh my God, give me your email address right now. Right? And that's kind of the customer development. That's the, the early stuff that I think is the most, the highest integrity signal that, um, that, that, is, that is important. Now, the flip side of that, the pitfalls then are getting thrown off by red herrings from, from advisors or investors or someone else like that along the way where you get pulled in a lot of direct directions. There's even this, um, this uh, phrase, um, uh, investor whiplash or a VC whiplash where you, you pitch different VCs and they pull you different directions and you make changes to your pitch deck and you just don't know what's right anymore. So uh, I think um, it should, the true North should stay customer voice. Uh, all great advice for sure. Well, we, we love to wrap up here uh, with a section we call the quick hitters, a little bit of rapid fire Q and a. So if you're ready, we'll jump in. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Ty. All right. Number one thing you're looking for when evaluating an early stage founder, just getting started within this ecosystem. Uh, technical depth within their specific area. I want to know they've they've grown up in this industry or spent a few area, years uh, working on this specific kind of technology, so they're not approaching it fresh. Love it. Lines with your earlier comment about the technical chops to to approach it for sure. Um, one resource, book, podcast, blog, uh, you'd recommend our audience to follow in the ecosystem. Of course, uh, we. I think you know the answer already. Uh, Guy Perlmutter's <laughs> book, Present Future. Um, the way it's set up is it's uh, about twenty chapters. It's about five or 10 pages per area, autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, space tech, and it offers um, a few pages of kind of history of how it got there, and then a few pages of, of projections to the future. But it's a really thoughtful, like deep tech primer. I think it should be part of any anyone looking at the deep tech area. This is the first book you should pick up, uh, Present Future by Guy Perlmutter. Couldn't agree more. So, so good. And and at this point, Sunil, just so that everyone has your blog specifically, do you mind giving us that website as well in case they fast forward yeah. here? Yeah, absolutely. The, my blog is at um, blog.ubiquity.vc. So, and U ubiquity is U-B-I-Q-U-I-T-Y. So blog.ubiquity.vc. Great content on there. I had to make sure and put a plug in there. Uh, one person who should be on the podcast. That's a great question. Um, you know, I um, I'm not sure how deep into the sector he is, but every time I I listen to him, I I see the world slightly differently, but I think Naval Ravikant has a lot of interesting views on venture capital, a lot of interesting orthogonal ways of looking at things, and I think it's worth exploring, and, and uh, I'm sure he has some um, exposure to this digital industrial sector, so it could be fun. Love it. And finally, uh, best best way for folks to reach out to you after the show? Yeah, um, I would love to hear from folks if you thought this was interesting or anything was a, was a touch point for you, or most importantly, if you have some interesting software beyond the screen ideas to discuss. My email address is my first name, Sunil, S-U-N-I-L, at ubiquity.vc. So please email me. I read every email. I respond to almost everything I get. And um, and it's just me at Ubiquity, a one-person firm. So uh, you'll be um, in direct touch with me. A machine, Sunil. And I don't know how they couldn't be interested. Uh, I'm a fan. I know you're you're basically defining a new category with this software beyond the screen. So really appreciate you jumping on here to help define it and give us some thoughts uh, on how things are going. So appreciate you jumping on Heavy Hitters. Yeah, thank you, Ty. I really enjoyed being part of this today.